Well, thank you. We have been in, in Germany at a camp. It's a camp that was very much in the building stages. Um, when we got there, we lived in a single room in a, a building that was sort of heated. And we shared a bathroom down the hall with several other families and anybody who came to work there um, in an area that was, well, the ladies' bathroom was sort of heated and the guys wasn't. Um, also shared a kitchen down the hall. By the time we left, we had a, a nice apartment built there. But the camp is still very much in the building stages, though it is functioning. They had, uh, we, we got a message from them that this year they already have over 500 kids registered for summer camp, which will be beat what we had last year, which beat what we had the year before. Even all through COVID, our numbers continued going up, and it's, it's just a, a, a praise to God for the things that he's done in spite of what's going on, and sometimes even because of them. We're convinced that a lot of the COVID things that were canceled gave people nothing else to do but come to camp. And yet this year when there aren't those restrictions, the numbers are continuing to go up. So it's, it's a good thing. Camp was kind of unique in that it was out in the woods. Now that doesn't seem very unique to you here, but in Germany having anything that is not in a city is really unique and special. And this, this camp was, it's a, a long story, but it, it, it was out in the woods. And so any time that somebody left camp to go into town, that kind of became an event. So I'm going to describe to you what, not a specific day, but what was typical of a, of a Saturday morning at camp. So on this particular Saturday, Carol was getting ready for a potluck that was going to be at church the next day at our, our church in the city of Gotha. And she was going to make my favorite, a broccoli salad. Only problem was she had no broccoli. So she asked if I would run into the store and pick some up for her. I said, sure, no problem. I'll let people know that I'm going into town. Well, the request started coming in after just a little while, I was, I was ready to go, and I go to Carol and I say, so Johnny and I are gonna go into the city of Gotha. It's about 25 kilometers, that's so 15 miles or so away. But on the way, we're gonna drop Kev off at the car repair place so he can pick his car up. First, we're gonna go to the hardware store and get all the fasteners that the guys need for the project that starts tomorrow. Then we're going to go to the paint store and get all the paint for the crew that's going to come in towards the end of the week. And after that, we're going to walk downtown and go to Istanbul to eat so that I can introduce Johnny to Fuwat and Figrit and Jabril and the other uh, Muslim men that we've befriended and gotten to know and talk to so that when we're gone, Johnny can start continue the conversations that we've been able to have with them. And after that, we're going to go to the grocery store. Oh, and I won't forget to get the vanilla that Anna Sophie wanted us to pick up. And Carol has kind of this chagrin look on her face, and she says, only bring me some broccoli, please. Now, when Carol says, only bring me some broccoli, she doesn't mean, no, don't do all those other things. Just go and get my broccoli and come back. What she means is, 
among all those other things, as important as they may be, just don't forget the first thing, you know, the reason you're making this trip, and get the broccoli. Well, I think that is the way that Samuel was using the word only when he said, only fear the Lord and serve him. Now, when Samuel was talking to the children of Israel, it was a time of real turmoil for these people. They had been attacked by Philistines, and they'd attacked the Philistines. There were some going back and forth, and they seemed to be losing more than they were winning. They were also adjusting themselves to having a new king. And not just a new king. This is the very first king they've ever had. And they're not all even that sure just what that means. Now Samuel, who's talking to them, had been their trusted leader for a lot of years. They, they knew this guy. and They knew he was honest. And he, was their, he wasn't their king. He was their prophet. He was the one who spoke to them from God. He gave them the word of God, and they, they knew to listen to him. But Samuel's reminding them that he's getting old, and he's not going to be around much longer. And they had all agreed that Samuel's sons were not the ones to take his place. They weren't of the same character. Well, Samuel reminds the children of Israel that all these problems that they're having, all the struggles, are the result of their own sin. And he gives them a very graphic demonstration of how God judges sin. And he calls out to God and has a thunderstorm with a lot of rain come. Now that's normally not a, not a big deal. Depending on where you live, that would, you said that's not even a surprise. But at this particular time of the year in Israel, it's not supposed to rain. And they knew this is something that God sent and these people were afraid, and rightly so. See, they had a history of focusing on their problems to the neglect of the solution, which is to simply trust and obey their God. Well, they, they plead with Samuel. They say, don't just leave us like this. And Samuel assures them that he's not going to forsake them. He'll still bring their cause before God, and God won't forsake them. But he says, you have to remember what has always been the most important thing from the very beginning. You need to only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all of your heart. And then he added this, he says, for consider what great things God has done for you. So in this verse that we have Samuel does two things. He gives them a command. He tells them what they need to do. But he also gives them a motivation for actually following it. Now, that alone shows what a gracious God we have. You know, God is our creator. He is all-powerful. He'll be our judge. He has every right to simply say, this is what you must do. Go do it because I'm God and I said so. That's perfectly right for him to do. But he went far beyond that and he said, let me give you a good reason for doing it. Just think of your history and consider all the great things that I've done for you. Now, if you were to go to an Israelite and say, so what great things has God done for you? They wouldn't hesitate for a minute. They said, well, let me tell you, we were slaves. 
We'd been slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years. And then God sent this guy, Moses, and he did all these amazing miracles and he punished all the gods of Egypt and he brought us out. And even though we were slaves, he brought us out with riches. And then he protected us from our enemies. He drowned them in the Red Sea. And then he defeated other armies. And as we wandered through the wilderness, still not obeying him as we ought to, he still provided for us. He gave us our sustenance. He gave us food and water. He made sure, sure that our shoes didn't wear out while we, were, while we were tramping through that wilderness for all those years. And then he brought us into this land. And he defeated nations that were far stronger than us. And he gave us their land. Well, I've met Jewish people. And I brought these things up and they said, well, maybe, but what's he done lately? Let me ask you, what has God done for you? You know, it could be that you are here today. I don't think it's a case, but you could have somebody here today who has never even heard of this guy, Jesus. See, God has a son and his name is Jesus call him the Christ. But even if you have never even heard his name, he has already done great things for you. And you've enjoyed them, whether you knew it or not. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him, this is speaking of that Jesus, For by him were all things created, that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, just consider the world in which you live. You know, every food that you enjoy, every beautiful landscape you see, and you've got lots of them around here to see, every river that you go to and catch fish in, every flower that you look at, all of those things are gifts from God. They are created by God. And they're there for, for us to enjoy. Every musical score that you listen to and say, that is just amazing. Every work of art that you look at. Every time you enjoy technology. These all flow from the creative nature of God who made us in his image so that we can also be creative and do some of those things. And even though we often mar and twist those things, because of our own sinful inclinations, they are still part of God's creation. They're there for us to use and enjoy, but to do so in a way that is honoring to God. Now that's just if you don't even know who Jesus or God is. For those of you who, who know him and acknowledge his existence, you know far more that he's done for you. I'm not going to, but I could tell you of a number of times when my own sin and foolishness could have ended my life or ruined my life and people around me as well. And yet God chose to preserve me. Didn't even know he was doing it, but I can see it now. I'm thankful for many times when I've asked God to give me something and he said no. And at the time I was disappointed. But also in time, you come to see, man, am I glad he said no. 
because what he had for me was so much better than what I would have done. You know, if we were to all start telling stories about the great things God's done for us, we would run out of time here long before we ran out of stories. But you know, as, as incredible as God's creation is, and as wonderful as his providential care for us is, these things pale in comparison to the grace that he's shown to us. Usually when we're describing grace, we use a, a nice theological definition. We call it unmerited favor. I like really simple. It's getting good that you don't deserve. That's, that's grace. You see, God is holy. It means he is absolutely without sin, and we are not. We not only have committed sin and we know we've committed sin, we read in Scripture that we've committed sin and that we were born sinful. God would be perfectly just to simply wipe us out. It would not be just for God to just ignore our sin and pretend it never happened. He's already pronounced the sentence of death on those who sin. And we were all born into this state. And if you remain in this state, you have every reason to cower in terror before the God who will be your judge. But there is a solution. We call it the gospel, the good news. See, we had been judged guilty and condemned to death. No hope whatsoever within ourselves. But the Bible tells us in Ephesians 2 that God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, he quickened us. He brought us to life together with Christ. See, Jesus came into this world and he lived a perfect life, the one that we were supposed to live but didn't and couldn't. And then he died in our place, taking the punishment that we deserved. He was buried, showing he really was dead. And then after the third day, he rose again. And he didn't just rise and disappear again. Lots of people saw him. They knew it was him. Sometimes he had to make it clear to them. But they knew it was him, and he stayed with them for 40 days. And then they watched him ascend up into heaven and heard the angels tell him, He's coming back again. Well, if you will just turn from your sin, call upon the name of Jesus, you will be saved. And that is good news. Now, for most of you, that might be old news. But it's still very, very good news. So these are the great things, just a smattering of the great things God has done for us. This is your motivation. But what does it motivate you to? And maybe it's a lot of things, but Samuel tells us what should be the first thing. So he gives a command. He says, fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all of your heart. Now, when I see a command in the Old Testament, I want to check and make sure that this is something that's applicable to us today. Um, 
Israelites were commanded to slaughter sheep and offer them the sacrifices. That's, that's not applicable to us today. We had the one sacrifice that took care of all that. But we need to see, are these things applicable to us? So while this particular passage is not quoted by a New Testament writer, every aspect of it is. For example, first in, uh, Peter says, Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Paul says, do not be slothful in business, be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. So we have the fearing God and serving the Lord. Again, Paul says, concerning how you serve, he says, we have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. He says, we serve in truth and honestly. And then Jesus said, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. So this is a command that's for us, every bit of it. And we are told first, he says, fear the Lord. Scripture talks a lot about fearing the Lord. Maybe it'd be better to say it talks a lot about people who fear the Lord and people who don't fear the Lord. We're going to, this morning, look at a, a pretty detailed description of the one who does not fear God and then focus on what the fear of God should look like in the child of God. So here's what uh, a description that Paul gives, and he accumulated this from the book of Psalms and from Isaiah. We find it in Romans chapter 3. He says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. To be sure, there are some in this world who deny God. They don't fear Him in the least. And we are seeing that played out on our televisions and in the news every day, it seems now. There are others who acknowledge God and they fear his judgment, but that does not equal salvation. So what is the fear of God that a believer ought to have? Well, there are a number of definitions out there and it seems like every one of the definitions needs to be explained. The one that I've heard lately that seems to be about the best I've heard is is this. It is an overwhelming and controlling sense of awe. Now we'll explain it. (laughs) Awe, just a dictionary-type definition, awe is the feeling of respect and amazement that you have when you are faced with something immensely powerful and often, but not necessarily, rather frightening. An example might be a tornado. Now, you don't, you don't have tornadoes around here, do you? Okay. There's 
What, what, what's really scary in the weather around here? An earthquake, okay, earthquakes. Now, they are immensely powerful. They can be very frightening. And they are controlling in this sense. I don't know if it, it, it works better with a tornado than with an earthquake, but you usually know when there's a tornado coming. And if you've got a brain in your head, you're going to seek shelter. You're not gonna sit there and get your camera out and video that thing until it blows you away. You're gonna go and hide. It will control you in that way. I imagine with an earthquake, probably the closest thing is when you start feeling things rumble, you're gonna go outside where you're not gonna have the building fall on you. But it will control how you act. It doesn't have to be something like a tornado. It could be a person. Now this gets a little bit tricky because people, different people are, are awed by different things. We were at the soccer camp last week. So we got a bunch of people there who are interested in soccer. And they have a guy there who is the soccer coach, a college player or maybe a college coach even, somebody who knows what they're doing. But if he's out there and he's teaching the kids, here's the proper way to kick a ball. And as he's doing that, a guy named Lionel Messi comes walking up. Anybody even know who Lionel Messi is? A, a couple of you. Okay, how about Cristiano Ronaldo? Probably the same two people know who he is. Or how about this one? And you might, how do you remember this? A guy named Pele. He was so famous, he only needed one name. These are probably the three best soccer players who ever lived. And I'll tell you, if Pele walked out on the field, well, it would be frightening because he's been dead for quite a while now. But, <laughs> but if Pele walked out on the field and this guy's showing the kids how to kick a ball, he's going to stop and say, Mr. Pele, would you show us how to do this? You are the best at it there's ever been. You can tell us a lot better than I can. Let's... For those of you who preach, let's say you have a group of young men and you're teaching them, here's, here's how you prepare a message. And as you're doing that, Charles Spurgeon walks in the door. Now, probably more of you know who Charles Spurgeon is. He's, he's known as the Prince of Preachers. If he came in and I was a guy teaching, my mouth would shut very quick except to say, sir, would you please teach us these things? men that you are in awe of can be controlling in that sense. Now I have to find my place. Oh. I like to use the example of electricity. Now you might not feel like you are really afraid of electricity, but I think probably everybody at least has a very healthy respect of it. For example, this is what causes you to get up and run when you see a toddler walking towards an electrical outlet with a paper clip in his hands that he's about to stick in there. And it's why you don't sit in a bathtub with a hair dryer plugged in and dry your hair. You know what the potential for that is. And if you're an electrician, you better have a good, healthy fear of electricity because that is what's going to keep you safe. You know, it doesn't, really, it doesn't really matter how much you enjoy electricity. It doesn't matter how often you use it. 
doesn't even matter how much you know about it. If you become cavalier about how you interact with it, you put your life in peril. It is the same way with your relationship with God. When you start, when you forget that this is the all-powerful, sovereign creator of the universe who will be your judge, and you start treating them as, as though he's your buddy that you can talk into whatever you want to, you put yourself in peril. You should have this awe of God. So our definition is as good as far as it goes, but it's not really complete. You see, tornadoes, they will control your actions, but only when there's a tornado close by. After that, you can just forget about it. You can even watch videos on it and maybe even laugh at some people who are being foolish around them. But you don't, you don't have to fear them when they're not near you. Uh, same way with, with people. You know, if, if uh, Lionel Messi were to walk in while we were discussing the existence of God and he says, oh, there's no God. We would have no problem saying, you don't know what you're talking about, buddy. If Charles Spurgeon came in while you're teaching a soccer lesson, he wouldn't even open his mouth because I don't think he's ever played soccer in his life. And if you've seen him, I don't think he could run the length of the field. But um, it's only in certain situations where they would be this awe-inspiring figure. Electricity may be a little better example because it's almost always around us. You always kind of have to be vigilant in that way. But I think we need to add a word to our definition. So let's say it is a, the fear of God is a constantly overwhelming and controlling sense of awe. But I think there's still one thing lacking in our definition. For the redeemed, the fear of God should at least over time include a real element of love and devotion. You know, a person could have a worldview that acknowledges the existence of God and recognizes that he would stand before him in judgment. And that understanding often results in a fear that does to some degree control somebody's behavior but it does not equal salvation. Martin Luther was that kind of a guy. If you've ever read much of Martin Luther's history, he was afraid of God. He was so much to the point where he joined a monastery. He would deprive himself of food and live in terrible conditions and spend hours and hours in a day, confessing anything that he thought might have been the wrong way to think about anything that could be construed as sin. And somebody suggested to Martin Luther one day that he ought to love God, and he was, Luther was just dumbfounded. He said, love God? I hate God. He's the one who's going to send me to hell. But then when at last Martin Luther came to understand and to trust in the sacrifice of Christ and how Christ's righteousness was applied to his own, Luther's own account, he also came to love God with all of his heart. You know, your salvation, 
may begin out of a fear of punishment, as well as gratitude for what Christ had done. But the more you come to understand God's great love and the sacrifice that he made for you on your behalf, his patience, his mercy, and the grace that he shows you when you continue to sin against him, you will absolutely come to love him more and more as time goes by. And yet you never lose that constant, overwhelming, and controlling sense of awe. This is the fear of God. And that fear, it is out of that fear that flows service. And it will be service that is both faithful and wholehearted. Now often when we think about a servant of God, we think about the pastor or the Sunday school teacher or maybe the person who comes in and cleans the church or the missionary. But we always try to find how is this work that he's doing related to God. And that's, now that's serving God. But you know, when Samuel was addressing the nation Israel and telling them all to fear the Lord and serve him, he wasn't singling out the priests and the Levites or people who had service that was specifically tied to spiritual godly service. He was talking to each and every one of them. You see, we serve God when we put his kingdom above our own desires. And then we just do as he commands. But we do so in a way and with an attitude that's pleasing to God. And this covers everything that you do in your life. Whether you're preparing a sermon or going to work on Monday morning. Whether you're teaching a Sunday school or raising your own children. Whether you're cleaning the church or just doing the maintenance around your own house. When you obey His commandments and you do your work in a way and with an attitude that pleases God. Everything that we do in life can reflect the character of God. And it can be counted as service to him so long as you do them in a way and in such a manner that you seek to bring glory to him through those things this is an attitude that we we need to have it's one spelled out in first corinthians 10 31 whether therefore we eat or drink or whatsoever we do do all to the glory of god and it, it is an attitude we need to have I think there's a, a danger in that attitude as well. See, we can be so convinced that everything we're doing is service to God that we neglect some of the things God has told us to do. Jesus made this very clear when he was talking to a couple of Pharisees one time. He said to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tie the mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You see, I can, I, I like to ride bikes, and I can go and ride my bike to the glory of God. You can go hunting to the glory of God. You can landscape around your house to the glory of God. But none of these things exempt me from fulfilling the weightier matters 
the things that we have been commanded to do, like fulfilling the Great Commission, like using the gifts and talents that God has given us to build up our brothers and sisters here in our local church. And we like to remind people that we're not saved by works, and rightly so. We'll quote Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 and say, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of works, it's lest any man should boast. I probably got something wrong there, didn't I? But we need to go on and read verse 10 as well. It says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before, beforehand that we should walk in them. So we are to fear the Lord, but out of that fear will flow service in everything that we do, but not to neglect the things that he has specifically told us we have to do. And as we serve, we're to do so faithfully. In your King James Bible, it says to serve in truth. In most of the others, it says faithfully, but the meaning is still the same. The idea, I think the picture they were trying to draw in olden days when there was no television and radio and all, if the king wanted to give a message, he would get a bunch of messengers in. He'd say, here is my message. Now take it to your assigned places and make sure that message is conveyed. Now if the king says, everybody, you need to pay 10% of your income for taxes, and that guy went out there and he says, man, people aren't going to like that message. And he goes out and he says, everybody, you need to pay a tenth of your taxes. He's probably going to lose his head. He did not serve faithfully. He didn't serve in truth. I had an opportunity a couple times in Germany to, to preach with a translator. And we, we had a guy that I worked with, uh, Kevin Mattia. He is an expert translator. He grew up in a home with a German father and an American mother and he speaks perfectly good English and perfectly good German. And he understands them both just equally as well. And I was talking, I was asking him, so, so when you translate, if I say something a little wrong, are you going to fix it and clarify it for me? He says, absolutely not. He says, I'm the translator. You're the preacher. You are to do, I, my job is to not hit my microphone. My job is to accurately convey what you convey, even to the point of your, just how you say it. If I stand up here and say, for God loved you, when I translate it, I'm going to say, God loved you. If you get up there and say, God so loved you that he gave his son, and I'm all excited about that, that translator better be just as excited about it. He's to convey everything that you say in every way that he can. Well, we are to serve faithfully. We're to reflect the character of our God and take his message to the world. So are you willing? Are you willing to take his message to the world in a day when it is becoming more and more unpopular? When you get in conversations, and you'll hear this today, you know, all religions lead to the same God. 
are you willing to stand up and say, not, not just get up and say, well, my religion doesn't teach that. Are you willing to stand up and say, no, the God who created the world gave us his word and he said that only through Jesus Christ can someone, can someone come to know and have peace with God. When people start saying that what God calls sin is good, and that baffled me when I first started seeing that in Scripture, but it doesn't baffle me anymore. I see it happening all the time. But are you willing to not say, well, you know, you might say that's good, but I, I was raised a little differently than that. Or maybe I'm just old-fashioned, but I don't see it that way. Or are you willing to say the God who created you and has the right to determine what is right and wrong, he says that is sin. Be very clear and faithful about how you take God's message. And are you willing to take it to whatever place that he sends you to take it? That might be in some place where you're in danger of losing your life. It might be some place where people just aren't going to like you anymore. That's more likely, but we still have to be willing to be faithful in delivering his message. And then are you willing to live consistent with that message. A lot of people like to say, well, I try to just be a gospel for people. Well, that's, that is good. When they look at your life, they should see a message that's consistent with Scripture. But it's not enough. They still aren't going to know the gospel just by watching you be a, a kind person with your wife and kids. But we do need to live a life that's consistent with what the Scriptures teach. You know, it's really not hard for us to understand what faithfulness is because we all know what we want a faithful friend to be like. We know what we want a faithful spouse to be like. If you've ever had an employee, you know what you want a faithful employee to be like. That's what we would expect, and that's what God expects of us. So we're to fear God and serve him faithfully and do so with all of our heart. What does that look like? I started looking for what Paul had to say about the way people should serve or obey. And I found a, a consistency very quickly. I'm just going to read you three verses from Paul's writings. You'll, you'll catch the consistency here right away. Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Ephesians 6, 5 says, Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in singleness of your heart as unto Christ. Colossians 3, 23 says, And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. You serve the way you would serve the Lord if he were standing right here next to you. And I'll be honest with you. If Jesus were standing right here bodily next to me, there are things that I think I would probably do differently. And yet, I believe in the omnipresence of God. I know he's standing right there next to me. 
And yet, this is something that we struggle with. So, so how do we bring our actions into compliance with what we believe to be true? Well, we're, we're told in Scripture a number of things. Colossians 3, 2 says to set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. It's got to do with your mind, where you're setting your affections. Romans 12, 2 says, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's getting your mind changed. And if and this is a, a whole separate sermon, but if you look at that Romans 12 too, you'll know that the world is doing its work of conforming you into its image, whether you try or not. If you're just in the world, it is conforming you to its image. The work of transforming your mind and not being conformed to the world, that is something that doesn't just automatically happen. You have to consciously decide you are going to change the way you think and filter the things that you see through what you've learned of Scripture. The more we do this, the more we think of the great things that God has done for us, the more we work at transforming our minds, the more we will be constantly overwhelmed and controlled by the awesomeness of our God. And the more we will love Him, with all of our heart and soul and mind. And out of that is going to flow faithful service. So the people of Israel had a lot of distractions in their lives. They allowed those distractions to turn their hearts away from fearing God and serving Him in truth. And our world is also full of distractions. And we haven't been attacked by Philistines. But we did just hopefully finish up with a pandemic that's changed all of our lives to some degree. We're living in a time when those who, who hold to what the scriptures say is good and right are called bigots and hate mongers. And those who practice and encourage what scripture says is sin are called role models and heroes live in a time of political unrest with an uncertainty of the future. But even if we could go back a few years to what we used to call normal, we're still distracted by our hobbies and that entertainment that's everywhere around us and, and just ordinary life. You know, all the stuff that's going on around us, it, it's real. It's not going to go away anytime soon. And these things are causing many of us to be so focused on the problems and the changes that we forget about the solution, just as the children of Israel did back in the days of Samuel. I'm not asking you to try to ignore everything that's going on around you. You probably couldn't if you tried. And I'm not going to tell you that I understand all the difficulties you're having, because I don't. And you don't know which ones I'm having. What I am asking you to do is consistently think about the great things that God has done for you. That's what you fill your mind with. And as you're motivated to respond to Him for those great things, don't forget that one thing that is the most important thing, and then let that one thing rule all the others. 
Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all of your heart. For consider what great things He's done for you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, You are such a good and gracious God. We are thankful that You've not only told us how we can live in a way that's honoring to you that always ends up being the best way to live. But you've shown us through your constant goodness to us that we can trust you to always be good and right. Lord, in this world we have lots of things that are seeking to pull our attention away from you. We would ask for your help and guidance to focus our minds on the things that you've done, the things that you've promised in your word. As we focus on those things, look forward to continuing in the fear of God, but a fear that brings about faithful service with a whole heart. Lord, when we see you accomplish great things, even using ones such as us, we will give you the praise and honor and glory for it all. We thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.